Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest for this episode is the creator of Skip Tracer and Diamond Dogs for 2000 AD and the Meg, as well as being a writer on Supergirl, Doctor Who Comics, the graphic novel Chanaika, and he's also a filmmaker. And it's a very welcome return uh, in 2021 for James P.T. James, welcome back. Thank you. I'm pleased to be back. Oh, it's a delight to have you. So, first question before we get to today's book, I suppose, is how is the uh, lockdown treating you as a writer and a filmmaker? Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which lockdown? Um, well, at the moment, I'm more of a primary school teacher. Because, right. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of since certainly since the new year, that's what's taken up most of the time. But yeah, I mean, last year. It feels like we did the. I haven't moved since we did the last one, which I think was sort of January. Time. Yes, it was. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. So it was just before the world changed. Um, I did. Uh, we. I made a film in February. But we shot a film in February of that year, and we kind of knew that this was coming at that point. It looked horrifically inevitable, um, but luckily we we're able to do the post production all remotely on that. So we did that sort of over the summer, and I had quite a bit of work on. Skip Tracer to uh, Diamond Dogs and another thing that I've got coming out soon, which is uh, which kept me busy. But that was it, really. I mean, everyone was at home. Yes, literally at home. Literally at home. Yes. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of space, a lot of time. So it's um, it's been all right. I mean, I think it's been. I wouldn't say I've been more productive, but I wouldn't say I've been less productive. Put it that way. Right. So it doesn't really affect me. It's other people around you, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah. My wife's at home, my daughter's at home, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll talk at the end of the podcast about what projects, what you're working on at the moment and what's coming out in 21. Sure. Um, now, you're on the list for Hooligan's Haircut, which we are going to get to at some point, probably in 22, I should imagine. But we've gone yeah. off on a bit of a tangent today because you suggested something else interesting. What's today's books? Well, today's books are the first two volumes of... John Wagner and Alan Grant's, or Alan Grant and John Wagner's run on detective comics, with mainly with Norm Brofogel. But yeah, they were. I mean, they were. They've only just really been recollected in the last couple of years, um, and they're sort of, I think, a bit of a lost moment in the careers of those two gents because it comes at a very interesting point. It's their first, well, certainly in Alan Grant's case, the first ongoing book in the US. And obviously would go on to have a huge career on Batman for the next decade. But it's also the beginning of the end of their partnership. Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, as you say, let's do facts and figures. Uh, These look like two trade collections from 2018 and 2020. So as you say, very recent. Uh, This is Batman, the Dark Knight Detective, Volume 2 and Volume 3, which Mm -hmm. collects Detective Comics 583 to 600. There's a couple of annuals in there as well. I think I've got the dates in the outline. I think it's 1988 to 1990. Or thereabouts. It might be earlier than that, I think. There's a reference to a 1986 issue, but I think that might be the the Who's Who directory uh, for DC. Uh, Yeah, I think 87 is probably when the very first issue came. Right, 87. If you go on that cover, the cover of 583, it says Feb 88, so... And usually it runs three months before. So. so that would probably be the end of 1987. Yeah. You're right, yeah. So it's like 87, 88. So it's sort of Oz time. 
Okay. Doing that in, in, in 2018. And I think the second trade, that finishes, this is before the Batman movie comes out, I think. Right. The Tim Burton one. So this is like, so the cover there is May 89. So yeah, that would have been the start of 89. Right. Okay. As you say, we're going to be talking about Alan Grant and John Wagner. There's also some Sam Hamm and Denny O'Neill in their writing. There is. Main artist we're going to talk about is Norm Brayfogle, but also there's some Klaus Jensen, there's Dennis Cohen, and, of course, uh, there's a Mike Mignola cover, which is rather well-known, I think. Um, yes, there is, yes. Denny O'Neill was, I guess, the main editor, but also Mike Gold on the series as well. So... Here we are. I like it when the book club chooses books that I've always wanted to get to but never actually read. Why Why this particular run of Detective Comics then? Well, if you were to look at my birth certificate, you'd see they'd probably <laughs> <laughs> hit, hit, that, hit at that sweet spot. I think I was about 12 or 13 when... So I think this is... I would say this is kind of the... This is when I became aware of comics... Uh, particularly American comics. Right. I was a big Batman fan as a little kid. I mean, my the two TV shows I watched when I was three, four were Doctor Who and the Adam West show that was being rerun at that time. And I think that was the first. I think the Batman is the first time I ever kind of got my head around cliffhangers. Right. <laughs> same bat, same bat time, same bat channel. But because of, of that, I was so into that. I think Christmas seventy eight, seventy nine. I was bought a book by my godmother, which was a collection of Batman comics through the ages. So it had stories from the 39 all the way through to the late 70s, which I, so I was a tiny kid. So I'd sort of read that until the spine broke and all the pages fell out. (laughs) So I'd read the whole thing. So I'd read it, I'd read sort of Batman from the 30s, Batman in the 40s, Batman in the mad 50s. And then the 60s and then kind of the beginning of the sort of Denny O'Neill stuff. Very young. I mean, really young. It's probably the first things I ever really read. So Batman was always kind of there in the background. And it had gone away, really. And then it was around that, around probably I was about 10. I remember reading something in the Sunday magazine. I think it was the U magazine, you know, the Mail on Sunday that my parents used to get. Oh, terrible. Um, There was a piece on The Dark Knight Returns about Frank Miller. Oh, right, of course, yeah. Oh, right, what's that? (laughs) And then they had, um, then you started to see some newsstand reprints turning up Mm -hmm. of like 1980s Batman stories, stuff by Len Wein and John Byrne, and there was kind of talk of a Batman movie. I was sort of becoming aware of those kinds of things. And um, I can remember going into into my local newsagent when I was about, must have been 11 or 12, and seeing the cover of one of these on the bottom shelf because we had news agents that sold quite a lot of American comics. So I'd been into kind of Marvel reprints and finding the Marvel monthly comics on my on the bottom shelves of the newsstand. But then there seemed to be a big influx of DC books around this time. And one of them was the cover of, I think it was an American Batman in London. Oh, right. <laughs> Later. So, and I saw that and I bought it and that was just, I was, I was hooked. And I think as well, it's probably the first time I ever really saw the names John Wagner and Alan Grant. Oh, okay. Or that they'd made it, so they made an impact. So 
and subsequently i realized that they wrote everything i read as a kid you know they read wrote doom lord they wrote all these stuff strips for eagle and battle i'd read hms nightshade and all these all these other things darkies mob that have been reprinted in the 80s so it was like oh right <laughs> so when you go back and look at sort of the what they done during that period it's almost like a so for me, it's almost like a culmination of everything that when I was growing up and it's then a kind of transition into kind of adulthood because what this did then was lead me into going to comic book stores and conventions and things like that. So it kind of took me from being a reader of comics as a kid into making me a fan of comics as I got older. Uh, fascinating. So this, in a way, as you say, is where you get name recognition for Wagner and Grant, uh, not through their earlier work. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, so I think, well, a lot of it was pseudonym, wasn't it? On the, Yeah, of course. They used to have all their various names. And I'm pretty sure I read the, I must have read this before I was reading 2000 AD. Right. Well. So, because I was, I remember I, I, stopped, I mean, I'd obviously read bits and pieces of, of it. And the one, I think the issue I can really remember is, I, was, I think I said to you before, is, the, is it 650 with the beginning of The Dead Man? Yes, yeah. But I can remember my brother picking up a couple of copies of, there's the one, is it Banana City? Right. She's a Will Simpson one that's painted. It's a strip. And then there's a, then it's the first part of the Kraken one. It's the one, the shooting match, the John Higgins one. Oh, yes, yeah. Which is a painting. I can't remember what issue that's in, but I can remember seeing that. And then but I was full in by the time we got to 650. That was, I was in it for the next few years quite, quite heavily. But this was, this is a few years before that. So I was, I was sort of, this is where I kind of realized who they were. So let's pull back the curtains a little bit because very helpfully you've done email interviews with both John and Alan about this run on Detective Comics. Um, I did. And, of course, as you say, they've been writing all these British comics since the 70s and here they are starting pretty much, you know, making that transition to American comics. How did they get the gig with uh, Detective Comics? It's almost like we should go straight to the, the, the horse's mouth itself. Yes. So, um, well, it's interesting that we've looked, you've looked at these as well, is that they've got – I wouldn't say they've got different recollections, but there's maybe Alan's is a bit thicker in terms of detail yes. than, uh, than John's. But I think John's quite interesting. John says – so as we said, how did you get this gig? They'd done one comic for the States, hadn't they, at this point, which was a book called Outcast. Yeah. Which they did um, – with Cam Kennedy. Cam Kennedy, yes, of course, yeah. Which I'm not sure if that's ever been republished or reprinted or collected. Right. But they did that, and that's obviously famously the, the basis of the Kenny Who strips. Yes, it? absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, so um, they'd done that. John's version of this is, is, in my case, it was more of a dabble than a transition in American comics. It was just something we felt we had to do. Everyone was working for America. A good run on Marvel or DC Comics could turn into quite a lucrative job, so why not? It wasn't that uh, hard. wasn't that hard writing in the American format. What was difficult at first was getting them to take any notice. The dread Kenny Who story was commentary on our efforts. <laughs> <laughs> but Alan's take on it is not dissimilar, but there's a bit more detail. And he says, I can't remember how it came about, to be honest. A couple of bigwigs from DC were coming over to London seeking new talent. They got Richard Burton to prepare a list of 2000 AD writers and artists who might suit them. Incredibly, Burton left myself and John Wagner off that list. <laughs> so we clubbed together which is quite incredible. So we clubbed together and Cam Kennedy, the artist on Outcast, went off to New York to sell our talents to DC. And he says basically it was easy to sort of transition to 24 pages a month. But so that's kind of how it came about then working with DC. The 
detective opportunity, Alan says, we received a phone call one afternoon from Denny O'Neill. He said he'd been reading Dread and wanted the Batman stories in his stable to be toughened up. He offered us a two-issue trial, the very first ventriloquist story, and after reading it, he extended our contract to a year. I ended up working on Batman for 10 years. Yes, because this is, as you say, this is the start of a 10-year uh, spell on Batman in one form or other for Alan Grant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, he's, he's on Detective, I think, for two, for about three years, and then he kind of is given Batman later on, Yeah, him and Norm Brayfogel, and then they're given their own book, which is Shadow of the Bat, I think, which Alan wrote for a very long time, I think for sort of 70 issues or something like that. And you've mentioned, I mean, their first two issues together, uh, almost like a trial run for Denny O'Neill and DC, um, because it introduces the characters of Scarface and the Ventriloquist. And yep. the run is notable in a way for some slightly, even for Batman's rogues gallery, some slightly, what would you say, wild and wacky villains, memorable villains they introduced. R- Grotesques. Grotesques, yes. <laughs> they're very macabre. They're very, very, they're very, they're very them, I think. Yes. <laughs> and they mentioned where they came from or where some of these ideas came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, what did they say about the ventriloquist? Let's have a look. Scarface. John says, Scarface and ventriloquist scram- sprang from a setup we used briefly in a 2000 AD story, just a couple of throwaway frames that we decided not to pursue because it struck us as an idea that needed a much broader canvas. So we put it aside for later. And that very first detective story we wrote proved to be the perfect place. I think, does Alan say anything about it? Yeah, the, I don't know. He doesn't say anything about that, I don't think. But yeah, he says basically it was a dread idea which we'd had in a file. But we knew we'd never get the best out of him in a dread story. It's because it's one bullet and that's it. Yes. <laughs> let's, th- let's think up another one. Well, that's the great thing, of course. Judge Dredd, he shoots the bad guys and they're gone, most of them. But Batman's rogues galleries, of course, return and return. And the ventriloquist, uh, the rat catcher, there's the corrosive man. Later on, Alan introduces the the character Anarchy. And also, I never know how to say this, Zaz, is it? The scarred... Mr. Zaz. Mr. Zaz, yeah. yeah. Um, there's and Cornelius it, Sturk as well in the... Uh, right. <laughs> ...who cuts out people's hearts. We'll come to him later. Okay. So it's fascinating that, in a way, some of them... Uh, started as either background characters in Mega City One or just ideas for Mega City One, which they dismissed because Dread would just dispatch them with a single bullet, and they, you know, they would be done. But of course, for the Batman, they are always being put away in Arkham and then coming back, aren't they? Yes, well, that's right. That's the great uh, dichotomy of, of, of Batman <laughs> and his character, um, but also why he's you know been around for eighty years. He's got this. Uh, well, he has got the best rogues gallery yeah in comics certainly in american comics probably spider-man would be the only one who's got a similar one yes i'd say and it's interesting that those two have got the best the, the biggest movie franchises because you've got the best villains right that's the oh yeah that's interesting yes they do of course have um yes and in the spider-man movies an excess of villains perhaps but uh, they do yeah, yeah. <laughs> well batman movies as well yeah true um, let's talk about Norm Brayfogel for a bit, because sadly, no longer with us. 1960 to 2018, right. people often talk about this phrase as like, you know, their Batman artist. And there are a few names that come up for definitive Batman artists over the decades. From the sort of this 80s, 90s period, Norm Brayfogel often mentioned in those sort of conversations, isn't he? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was without a shadow of a doubt the. He's the definitive Batman artist of that late 80s, early 90s period, without a question. And I think probably one of the best artists to ever work on the character. I'd say he's one of the best right in the top echelon. I think he's one of the very best. You know, there's probably in the top five. Yeah. So he'd started Um, on 579 of Detective Comics just before... Alan and John. And then, of course, as you say, with Alan, he forms this great writing and art partnership that goes on for years, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do. They do. They did loads of stuff. They did. Well, they did the three Batman titles. He did some other stuff with other people. He did a Batman book with um, Alan Brennan, one of the first Elseworlds. Oh, right. Okay. This is a weird kind of religious Batman. It's a very strange one, I remember. Um, he did that Danny O'Neill graphic novel, The Birth of the Demon which is the origin of Ra's al Ghul. Uh, and then they would go on, they did Anarchy together, didn't they? Yes, they, they did, did it as a yeah. And they did it as a, as a not very good ongoing series. Um, but yes, they did, they worked together for pretty much all of Alan's time in American comics. Um, and he was, but he was never as good as when he was on Batman. Yeah. And that I was mean, the, that was the moment. I know from your interviews, uh, the transcripts, that it was mainly, it's mainly the relationship between Alan and Norm that uh, was, you know, uh, set this up. I don't think John knew too much about the artist, but Alan and, and Norm Brayfogle formed a great working uh, relationship, I think. Well, they became very good friends as well. I think that was the other thing. I mean, yeah. when, I was trying to think when I was, they came over all, the whole Batman team one year for UCAC. And they had Alan, Norm Brayfogel on stage. I think Marv Wolfman was there. Denny O'Neill was there. You know, like the whole kind of bat team, really. Um, and Brayfogel was sketching, and he did some lovely stuff. He was very, very affable at the table. Very, and you could, but you could tell that he and Alan were very good friends. Right, very close friends. Um, and yes, that was a relationship that they kind of developed over time i'm trying to think they work regularly together in one batman probably for five to six years right i think it's 87 through to about 92 93 because he left shadow about after about a year probably to do that graphic novel right (laughs) okay and you know it's interesting as you've said because this is sort of where john and alan's partnership of writing more or less finishes apart from one or two other projects they'll do over the next year or two but at the same time mm. as that's sort of breaking up uh alan's forming a working partnership with norm brayfogle um which is very yeah. productive and john you know john i think possibly i know from interviews and from what he said to you he's probably only on, on about the first five issues in this book um, yes. Although Alan kept his name on the book for a year because that was the contract, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I believe so. I wonder if John got any money for it. <laughs> well, apparently, from what I've been reading, John didn't uh, wasn't seeing the royalties returns that he was expecting, so he sort of lost yes. interest. Um, and then, of course, after this book uh, in 1989... Or after these two, oh, yes. Batman sales and Batman comics are suddenly about to increase tenfold. I gather because I of, believe, yeah, yeah, because of A Tim Burton's film. Batman film. Exactly. Well, it's well, it's the only time that um, there's been an uplift in comic sales because of a movie. Yeah, like in an, across the board, 
And um, I remember being at UCAC and talking. This was years, some years later, and Alan was talking, and he was saying that the royalty checks or the statements that they got were 0.00, pretty right. much. And then you get up to the months after the to the Batman movie coming out, and you're talking about five-figure sums. And he said they went up <laughs> for a very long time. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, I know, yeah. I mean, I know some stories from people who worked at Marvel in the early 90s when they did things like, like in-house editors who did, like, a weekend dialogue polish on a on a comic that was an annual that was coming out and um finding that their monthly salary seemed to have been paid to them twice when they got paid and it was actually the royalties from the (laughs) the very small job they'd done on a comic that was completely un you know it's not not an important book at all it was just everything sold yeah everything sold at levels that were just unimaginable yes um so John did quite <laughs> stay on it <laughs> to the right point, I don't think. And Alan did. But then I think John did okay. <laughs> yeah, good. Yes, he has done okay. He's, you know, he's had done okay. Um, you know, again, Alan Grant mentions Norm Brayfogel as being part of his top three Batman artists of all time, I think. Um, he does, yes. He says Jerry Robinson, Neil Adams and Norm. Yeah. And, I mean, those are great names on Batman, aren't they? Neil Adams, Jerry Robinson. Um, they would be in a lot of people's top three, I guess, wouldn't they? They would. I think we, Alan and I agreed. I said that to him. I said that those were my top three, and he said those are mine. So that's why it's in there. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think that he's right. I think those are, the, those are the ones that have the big sort of stamp. I think there are ones that are, you know, Jim Aparo is a great artist, Batman artist. But he was never really what you'd call an innovative Batman artist. He sort of did a version that was sort of somewhere between Neil Adams and Dick Sprang. Right. Maybe. And some other, and maybe a bit Marshall Rogers. We could put Marshall Rogers maybe in there for some, in that kind of upper echelon. I think of the latter artists, I think Jim Lee has to be given kudos in that area. Certainly the Jim Lee that came back after his uh, years at Wildstorm post-hush, all those kinds of things. I think Jim Lee's a great Batman artist, actually. Um, but there aren't many of them that kind of really make a big impact in that way. But uh, Norm is definitely one of those ones. And it was very interesting as well. I think his style is is much more cartoony than the comic book artists that you've seen develop in the 1980s. And in a lot of ways, I think he's a precursor of the Batman animated series. I think this, even though he draws Batman in a very different way, very angular and long and very baroque with his that cloak seems to go on forever yes um there's something about that the way he draws batman that kind of opens up the space for what bruce tim and would do and then people like mike parabek when they did the batman adventures comic book in the early 90s which was for a long time the best batman comic batman the batman era that we this is a great i think the other thing as well this is a really great period of batman this period from 87, 88 through to the early 90s, maybe 91, 92. And kind of after that, it becomes bloated and far too, you know, the success is in front of the kind of material, I think, as a, right. as a reader. But this period is really, really great. And I think it's then, and the Batman animated series came along and took a lot of those things and obviously also adapted um, Scarface and the Ventriloquist. Yes. <laughs> They're put in it. So um, that's kind of the impact they had, I think. You could be funny with Batman, but not 
not throw away. I think that's what Alan and John's stuff and particularly Alan's stuff later is. It's very accessible. It's very funny. It's very light. It's very energetic, but there's more to it than that. So I'm going to ask you about continuity and writing styles, but before we do that, mm. perhaps just give listeners who haven't read these uh, this run a flavour of some of the stories or some of the characters that they uh, they cover and what sort of happens, what sort of Batman stories we find in these two books. Well, it's interesting. I'm trying to think of what was going on in the other books at the time. I mean, I think parallel to this is Jim Starlin right. writing Batman. Um and obviously you're leading up to sort of the death in the family and all that stuff where they killed Robin with yeah. the, the gimmicks the of the phone, phone line and all the rest vote. of it. Yes. Yeah. So, and this is obviously only also two years after Dark Knight, yeah. maybe a year. And I suspect with this, probably about a year after year one. Oh, right. Okay. So, the, so you see, Denny O'Neill was only relatively recently installed as the editor of Batman by this point. I don't think he'd been at DC for that long. I think he comes in at the end of uh, Dark Knight Returns. That's not his book that he that he's on right from the start. But I think he sort of shepherds that through. He does Batman Year One with Miller and Mazzuchelli, and then obviously there is a re- there's kind of a restart of the of Batman as a character. And I think they're flailing around a little bit at the start, but they kind of hit onto a thing in in Batman with with Stalin, which is pretty good, and then they. Obviously, they get rid of it. Was Mike Barr and Alan Davis were doing it before? Yes, that's right. Yes. So, and I think that's where Bray Fogel came in because he had a style that was. If you go back and reread those those books, actually, Alan Davis's Batman is is beautiful. I'm not sure the stories are that great, but the but the the his artwork on those books is phenomenally good. So they done so they'd done a bit of that, and then so this was kind of them trying to sort of find a bit of a different tone for detective comics, I think, as well. Yeah. So I think what's interesting in the first sort of six to eight issues is there's no Bruce Wayne. Right. It's all Batman. Just It's all Batman. It's all Batman. It's all new villains. There's very little Commissioner Gordon. It's. I think they decided it's Batman on his nights off from Batman. So it's like a, it's a sort of different version of Gotham. It's a much darker, it's much more sort of street level book. But it's a street level that's very sort of weird and psychedelic. There's a lot of drugs in these stories. As yes, well. there's a lot, <laughs> and that doesn't stop. That doesn't stop. <laughs> like the first story with ventriloquist is a drug story, isn't it? This yeah. Fever thing that they bring in, people burning up. The second story, I think, is the corrosive man, isn't it? The um, or is it the night people one? The that's rat the, catcher's the, the second rat one. Catcher, yeah. Yeah, the rat catcher is another one. That feels very dread, I think. Yes. I don't know. I think that one feels the most. I think that one feels like the most John Wagner, actually, than Alan Grant. You could see dread being somehow overpowered and dragged down, drugged and dragged down into yes. the rat catcher's lair, couldn't yes, you? Yes, definitely. Yeah, there's a you sort could. of slight, almost like a Fink Angel sort of, uh, or Rat Fink yes. sort of approach. Yeah. And then in the, in the, by the time you get to the sort of the Night People story, which is a three-parter, which introduces the, the gloriously subtle cadaver yes. <laughs> <laughs> character who comes back later on, um, and the corrosive man who's this amazing bonkers villain. They must have watched it. Is it The Incredible Melting Man? Yeah, it's like that, isn't it? Yeah, or Molten <laughs> Man from Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's, um, but they introduce a bunch of homeless characters in this that recur all the way through the Alan Grant 
Ron. The brilliantly named Legs. <laughs> who, who has no legs, yeah. um, funnily enough. And so there's a kind of setting up of a... There's, I think what's interesting in this verse is they sort of set up a kind of... That Gotham's a sort of interconnected place. That things that happen at the sort of lowest levels kind of reverberate up to the highest levels. And I think that's there in the kind of Ratcatcher story as well. Obviously, he's shoved a load of people in into into cells and had rats attack them because they did something to him when he was in prison. Um, so there's a kind of sense of, of Gotham. I think what they did Omega city one comes through in these early stories very strongly. And I think as it develops, that only becomes more and more pronounced. But I think as well, if you get, look at the stories where you can see Alan take over on his own, when that night, um, What's it called? Is it called Night People? Yes, the, the Night People with Cadaver and the Corrosive Man and all that. Yes. When that's finished, the next issue that they do is An American Batman in London. Yeah. Which is, we would say, probably the first one that um, Alan does on his own. Maybe. I don't know. John Wager and Alan Grant, is, they're down around that way. That's the first time Bruce Wayne is in, in an issue. Right. That's the first and time he's turned up. And, of course, we're in a different city. Yeah. Up. Yeah, and then the last one, which is in the first collection, which is um, what's it called? It's an ab- is it? It's about the Aborigine. Aborigine. Yes, that's got a lot of Bruce Wayne in it, and that kind of plays with with Batman and Bruce Wayne. I think that's the first time Alfred is in it, or maybe the previous issue. But these, so you've started to bring in, and that to me, if you read these, is that's exactly what Alan Grant does on Batman later on. Right, is he he broadens the palette? He uses Bruce Wayne a lot. He uses. Bruce Wayne's money for uh, philanthropic good, a lot. And he has a very moral v- vision of Bruce Wayne, actually, and Batman. So I think don't think that's there in the early issues. But I think when you get Alan on his own, I think that, that starts to assert itself. Okay, fascinating stuff. So, I mean, obviously Batman, one of the most recognisable comic ca- characters in the world. Indeed. And, of course, with a huge rose gallery, a huge continuity. How did, let's get into this, how did John and Alan sort of handle this for Batman uh, when they took over? (laughs) I don't think they did. I think they (laughs) they read a bit. I just think they did their own version of Batman. I mean, I think there's a kind of, John says, if you go with what John says about Batman as a character, what's your connection to the character? He says, I knew Batman, but I wasn't a big fan or even a reader. Alan was more into American comics, so I relied on him to keep it straight on continuity and the character. And Alan says, um, Batman had been my hero of choice since I was four. Right. <laughs> my cousin immigrated to the States and started, started sending random collections of US comics to me and my brothers, and I remembered reading the DC books, but it was always Batman who grabbed my attention. During my teenage years, I became a Marvel fan, but always kept my eye open for what was happening with The Dark Knight. I knew the version of the Batman that I loved and that's what I went for. And I think that that is actually what they did. I don't think that they really bothered reading <laughs> what came before. And I don't think they really, it, they needed to worry about it either. And it was interesting. I think it was in a, in a pretty amorphous state. And I think the character had had this kind of amazing kind of like wrecking ball revolution with Frank Miller. But what did they do afterwards? I mean, year, Batman Year One was followed up by Batman Year Two, which not many yep. people remember. Um, yeah. I think Alan Davis did one issue of that, and then he bailed, and then it's Todd McFarlane. It's I like, remember the Alan Davis cover of Batman with a gun that Alan Davis did, yes. which was for Year Two, wasn't it? 
Yes, yes. The first issue of that, which is in Detective. So yeah, Detective. Actually, that was in Detective. All right. Too. Yeah. So it was a Mike Barr thing, and that didn't make any sort of impact on the character really in the same way. So I think there was. I think it was a bit of a drift. It had this kind of massive kind of revolution with the character, but it doesn't really kind of take hold until you get the big stunt with Robin, I don't think. Right. In the popular consciousness. And then obviously that all leads into the big fury about the movie. And um, I think they were, they were pretty much left alone. And that's what sort of comes across to me is that this is a, this is a still an era of comics, which is not being managed by the kind of corporate big wigs and uh, toy people that would all come later. <laughs> yeah. We're not, we're not in the era of variant covers. We're not in the era of, you know, this is what we need to maintain or putting commercial concerns first. They just approached it from a very pure story. And I think the thing is they were hired because of what they'd done. Yes. They were hired because of that dread work. And by 1987, 88, that dread work was hugely respected, both in the UK and in the US. So, um, they, they were doing that. And I'm sure at this point they were probably also working on something like stuff like The Last American. Yeah. Which is also, um, that's Cam Kennedy again. No, no, it's Mick McMahon, isn't it? I think. Is that- it's Mick McMahon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And I think that that's where, the, that's where apparently the kind of the, the, the split occurred, wasn't it? Right. Was the book. I'm looking in the second volume of this Detective Comics. And of course, as you say, the writing credits change to Alan Grant and John Wagner. Uh, yeah. They bring back the ventriloquist, or Alan and Norm bring back the ventriloquist, obviously. Uh, and then they also have to do that thing, which I guess writers on you know big series always have to get told to do by their editors at some point. They have to do a crossover issue because there was a DC crossover going on, um, yeah. which was the Invasion series. And they do an, ep- they do an issue of that. Um, which I presume <laughs> Alan and Norm had to handle. No, no, Alan Alan writes it. Oh right, supposedly. it's uh, yeah, it's Irv Novik, isn't it? Steve Mitchell. He's a kind of seventies. He's a seventies Batman. You know, I won't use the word hack because I think Irv Novik did some very good work actually. But I think he it was his work's not known for its um, <laughs> individuality. Put it that way. Yeah. Um, he's a but he's a you know he's a he's a job in artist. So. Um, that is the weakest issue by not even a little way, by a very long way. And I can remember that crossover. I mean, it's just, it's one of those stories, this one. You've, it's interesting because it comes, they've been developing their take on Batman. The fear story at the beginning, the Cornelius Sturk one is, is great. But that's pure sort of Alan Grant, full on Batman at this point. Then they do this ecstasy issue. Not so good, but that's, that's, Still, it introduces Joe Potato, a character who would return many times yeah. <laughs> over the course of Alan's run. Um, but it's still pretty good and pretty funny. It's got a lot of character in it. Um, but you get to this one, and it's just, it could be published by anyone at any point in the last 15 years. And the big crossover was just this huge, massive thing. Like Batman with aliens doesn't really work very well. No, and you know, as you said, the street level, dark Gotham streets those stories that they've been doing up until then are so, uh, much much more engaging, aren't they? And, of course, they do yeah. feel, I suppose they do feel a bit, obviously, a bit Judge Dreddy as well, don't they? They're sort of like the weird yeah. city as a character. 
type um, part yeah, yeah. of it. Yeah. This is very much like what the books became in the nineties. This type of invade. This is this story. This particular issue with the, the the kind of crossovers that you don't care about, sort of shoehorned in kind of uh, <laughs> elements. I think the best part of that this issue is the the opening page with the with the narration, right about Cuba, and then in 1989 the aliens landed. It's just it's just not a very it just doesn't work with Batman. You've got to, I think Grant Morrison did it the best with the JLA, getting Batman in the kind of sort of Mr. Spock, Reed Richards role within the the Justice League and playing him as the kind of straight man because it, it just doesn't work. It's just stupid when you see Batman sort of swimming in his cowl. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, yes. It always looks yes. weird, it's, doesn't it's, it? It does look very weird. And he's kind of flying. And also as well, it makes the sort of the, the villain, the aliens who are this invading horde look like the biggest bunch of chumps ever. You've got Hawkmen that can't spot Batman. You've got these... Kundian aliens with whips and art suits of armor that Batman seems to take out without any kind of uh, any trouble <laughs> problem at all. whatsoever. Any trouble at all. And at the end, he's, they don't even give it an ending. He's just swimming. He says, Oh, I'll, I'll worry about that when I get home later. It's yeah. like, okay. Swimming back to Gotham from Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Bruce Wayne's got a nightclub in Florida or Miami. Yeah, I, I was going to say the Bat Boat's going to turn up at some point, presumably. Yes. Um, Shark repellent bat spray. There's an interesting story towards the end of the second volume, the video nasties one, where they sort of they look ahead yeah. to some of the sort of like YouTube citizen journalist type stuff. Um, Again, it's quite dread, isn't it? I think. Yes. This one. Um, and I, it's drawn. It's drawn by Eduardo Barreto, who I worked with actually on. Um, oh right. The Escapist, the Dark Horse, the Michael Chabon yes. series. We did a. I did a strip with him. When did he do it? So 2008, maybe it wasn't long before he died a while back now. Um, and it was one of the last things he did, I think um, not straight at the end. I think he, he passed away two or three years afterwards. Um, but um, he was a great artist. I, I, I've always really loved his stuff before ever way before I worked with him. He used to do, um, I loved his run on the shadow, the shadow strikes. Right. Which was a book uh, that came out in the early nineties, late eighties. Um, and he worked on teen Titans. I think he replaced George Perez, didn't he? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And he did a lot. He did a lot. It was, I think he was Argentinian. Right. But he was maybe Uruguayan. I can't remember. He's, he was obviously South Latin American, but he's a, he was a tremendous artist. Yeah. This is a, that's not a bad little two issue bit, even though there is a kind of, uh, <laughs> There's a strange. I don't know if you noticed. There's a strange panel at the end of the first issue of that, which is sort of like there's. It's sort of like a negative exposure. Uh, let me see if I can find it right now. It's on a page hundred page hundred and forty, I think. Oh yes, yes, I've got it. Yes, indeed. That's. I don't know if you know what that is. That's the. That's the invasion in detonating the gene bomb, which I think every DC comic of that month ended with that panel. Oh, I see. Right. So it's good. so even though you've got this story about video nasties, you have this ludicrous. It's got nothing to do with the story, and it's just shoved in, and it makes no sense whatsoever. Especially collected. It's and we then get, they never the, we get it, a sort of bubble that says the sky. What in the name of? And then we get the sort of yeah. as you say the explosion without any reference. I sus- well, I suspect a lot of that um, story in Cuba was rewritten by editorial. 
Right. That's my feeling, because it doesn't even read like Alan's work to make it fit with whatever they were going to do. So that's that, that would be my take on that. That's, how, that's what it looks like. And I think it's an issue that everyone kind of just moves on from very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, the, yeah, no. the tricky bit of having to introduce these sort of um, company-wide events and a reference to them. I remember, because I've been reading a lot of Swamp Thing recently, and they're doing all that stuff about, you know, you've got to put crisis in it. You've got to make a crisis reference. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Red Skies, isn't it? Exactly, Red Skies. And you've got to have the Watcher, not the Watcher, what's the, the Monitor is the DC. Harbinger and the Monitor, that's right. You've got to put them in. And they just feel out of place in this sort of, you know, the uh, Swamp Thing, Muck Monsters and horror stuff that they were doing. But, uh, yeah. And they bring in, isn't that the one isn't John Constantine in that one as well? Well, John Constantine is, is introduced, yes, in the American Gothic or before the American Gothic stuff, uh, leading up to, I think, issue 50 of Swamp Thing, where they do the big... Yeah the big sort of uh, all the magical, mystical characters of the DC universe combined. Um, and then when he goes into hell, is that the, the annual they did? They it? do, that's it's right. It's in the uh, Swamp Thing Annual 2, yes. Well, it's interesting. You said I was reading, when I was reading those, um, these comics as issues, these detective comics, because then I obviously was buying them monthly on the newsstand and finding comic shops where you could buy them three months in advance. So it was like, it was like Christmas comes early. Um, when I was reading that, you, they were doing those Swamp Thing black and white collections for Titan. Oh, right, yeah. And, I, and my, li- my local library had those. So I sort of read those then and was able to get all of them. And some of them you could buy secondhand, actually. I found them in the secondhand shop. So they, they very much fit with that. I think, w- in a way, I think their take on Batman is not a million miles away from the way that Alan Moore approached American comics as well they're very different writers but their approach to it i think is okay did all this other stuff happen but you just you just go full on for the version of the character that you're going to write right and they don't imitate more and i think their stuff in a lot of ways is much more like that as a result of it rather than say the grant morrison animal man which is very those first four issues are you know they're kind of like a tribute to to, to alan moore swamp thing in lots of ways yeah very, very similar very similar um but yeah, the, the crossovers always imposed. <laughs> they are, yes. Yeah. So, James, you've written, I think you've written JLA, you've written Supergirl, you've written Marvel, you've written some of the world's most recognisable comic book characters yourself. How how did you tackle it when you come to take on these sort of very well-known comic mm. book characters? It always depends on the circumstances that you're given the job. When I did Supergirl, I was approached twice to do that, and that was both times it was sort of – the first time I did it I – th- did I tell you this story before? I don't know. There was, I was approached by, completely out of the blue by – I knew Matt Alderson, who was the editor, um, in passing, and I got an email from him saying, we've got a problem with this run. We want to finish this run off that we've kind of basically fired the writer, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we want to go to the, what we're going to do next but we need to have an issue that sort of bridges the gap. It's a self-contained thing. doesn't make any reference really to the stuff that's gone before or to what's going to come after. And can you use this cover <laughs> that we already have right. for this character that was going to be an ongoing character? So you had to work this character. See, it was kind of that old kind of Julie Schwartz thing. Here's a cover, try and make a story up. Mm. When I did Supergirl the second time, it wasn't a million miles away from that. Nick Spencer, who was writing, who now writes Amazing Spider-Man, was meant to be the new writer of, of Supergirl. 
and for a variety of reasons had jumped ship and was not what he had delivered is not what they wanted as well so um we had a book that i had they said you do it do what you want and the new 52 was coming so you kind of have to sort of you kind of look at what's come before but you just sort of think well what do you like about the character what makes you what interests you about it and kind of go with that i mean with the supergirl thing i had to kind of re-dialogue an issue that had already been drawn right which i did mostly i think i pretty much re-dialogued the whole book or maybe my memory is uh playing tricks on me there but i certainly did a large chunk of that and then i had to write the next issue the beginning of the next issue so the artist had something to draw alongside that so and that was over christmas that was in the run-up to christmas i remember that it was i think i was offered the job on the 17th of december and i had to deliver issue my first issue by christmas eve blimey okay yeah <laughs> so and i had to get the first five pages in within about two, a day two days right so i kind of wrote a bit and then i sort of wrote so i was kind of doing the stuff on the first issue to sort of get it to set up and then a lot of it's just the job. You just have to deal with the deadline. I mean, when I was doing Batman, my, my experiences on Batman were always pretty good because I had, um, I did some stuff for Batman that never came out actually. So I got to sort of, I did a couple of backup strips of detectives that were never used because they ch- they stopped doing just backup strips. The Batman stuff of mine that came out was actually the Batman animated stuff. And that was just great because that was just, you could do a single issue of Batman without any worries about continuity. And you just kind of write the, the version of Batman that you that resonates with you. And I have to be honest, it was pretty much this version. Right, okay. <laughs> it's kind of, I think, you know, there's Etrigan the Demon and there's, you know, the Riddler and then there's Harley Quinn. It's kind of that kind of slightly more grassroots mad version in one story. And then it's the bit more kind of supernatural mad Batman in the other one. I, I like Batman with Robin, actually. <laughs> if I ever had the chance to write Batman, I'd write Batman with Robin. And, and if it was my up to me, I'd have Robin in small pixie boots and little green trunks. None of this armor stuff. You wouldn't want any of that. It's just, the traditional Robin. <laughs> yeah, I think Robin. I think Robin. Robin's such a silly character. You can't kind of try and make them more serious. <laughs> it just seems kind of counterproductive. Um, and, I, and Alan and that did actually he was very involved in the in the introduction of the Tim Drake Robin later on when they did that and they he made Batman and Robin work brilliantly right as a kind of as a partnership and I love and I really love that because they're kind of they're they're fun stories but with an with a bit of an edge and some intelligence to them and some darkness but they're still fun. Robin is still a fun character. He's a kid. I mean, Robin should be the coolest character of all because he he gets to hang out with Batman. Hmm. <laughs> And he's always plays this kind of a kind of a you know a drag on Batman, and you know I think he's he's a really good character. He's the longest running character, you know, with Superman and Wonder Woman. And in many ways, the trinity of DC characters is actually Superman, Batman, and Robin. And when I read those stories as a kid, those early sort of like gold to Silver Age books, you know, the the stuff, and and before that, the stuff in the forties and fifties, world's finest was always Batman, Robin, and Superman. They're like fairy stories. That's kind of how I always think of those characters, and that's how you kind of approach them. What about the baggage of the past and the continuity? Does that is that a sort of challenge when you take on these characters? Depends on the book. I think if you're writing X Men, it would be. Yeah, I think it's become more of a challenge now because I think comics, these types of comics, are, are aimed primarily at people who only read everything and 
it's very much based around that sort of fan. I think these comics at this point are still being aimed at a more a wider audience. They were still newsstand distributed. Um, and I think that shows in the way that they approached the continuity and things like that. I right. mean, and I, I think the DC comics were always much stronger when the continuity is lighter. And I think Marvel comics, probably their continuity is always going to be a bit, I think it's a bit of an illusion as well though. Cause I think the, the I, I can remember as well the runs of super, of Marvel books that I really loved when I was in probably sort of eight, nine, ten, which was my peak sort of Marvel reading era, were things like Denny O'Neill writing Iron Man hmm. when he was doing like Demon in the it was after Demon in the Bottom, but it was stuff like the Iron Monger, the stuff they used in the first Iron Man movie. I remember reading all that at the time and that working really well because it didn't really impinge on anything else. Right. The the the. Mark Grunewald, Captain America. All that stuff was great. Um, it didn't really kind of... There was the odd bit of crossover, but not very much. And all the Spider-Man books, the Spider-Man titles that um, Mike Carlin edited um, around the time of the black costume and all the all that kind of stuff, the Hobgoblin and everything. So I think, I think, the, I think the characters have to be consistent with the continuity that they have in, the, in that kind of line of books. But when they're kind of... I think when it becomes line-wide continuity, I think that's a problem. And I think if you look at what's happened with American comics in the last 10 to 15 years, it's all been driven by upper echelons, editorial management. Hmm. And that doesn't, for me, doesn't lead to good comics. We had a little bit of that when we were doing stuff like, um, not with Supergirl, but there was a, there was, I did a, a strip that never, a backup strip for a book that, funnily enough, never came out. It was a gentleman ghost story. And I can remember that it was we were doing it, and it was drawn, it was fully drawn, and it was going to run. Um, and we had to run it past the people who were doing fifty-two, the weekly time. Oh, uh, right, time. of course, yeah. And it was like that, that they. I mean, we ended up getting away with what we wanted to do, but it was just another thing that, that was just. Why do we even? <laughs> it didn't make any difference to what they wanted to do, but they had to kind of, you know, have their say. So I think it was a very different way. And I think Denny O'Neill, obviously, at this point was very, with the detective books, was was just in control of the Batman books. And there were only two Batman titles. Right. When you do a book like Supergirl, for example, I'd say, you, yeah, I mean, it's not really a Superman book as well. It's not the same. If you were taking on one of the Superman titles, that would be more difficult. But I was always very lucky. I got to sort of play with the characters without any real interference. And that's good, actually. I mean, I'd really... I look back on the American comic stuff now I did and, and I think it was quite a nice time to do it because it wasn't so, there was a lot less um, pressure. The internet wasn't so uh, <laughs> so much of a, a loud and, you know, negative voice. I mean, it was starting to happen, but it wasn't, you know, yeah. I don't think it was driving the content of these books in quite the same way. But yeah, I think, it, you, I don't think you should really be too worried about the continuity when you take it on. I think you need to be respectful because you need to understand that people are reading those titles before you before you arrive but it's your when you're given that job your job is to kind of write as the story that you want to write find the thing that makes you interested in that character right or that kind of world or if it's not the character something about the character something about the supporting cast something like that and i think those are the things you have to do i mean i i think i'm not really a big fan of continuity right <laughs> And I think what you said about John Constantine and uh, sorry, the crisis thing and swamp thing is a very good case in point. How many good crossover issues have there ever been? Yeah. Are they ever anyone's favorite? 
No. I don't think so, no, no. And if you if we sort of transition to your work for 2000D and the Meg, how did you go about creating new strips and, you know, in a way, creating your own continuity? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? It's, um, I think... I think in all of it, it's consistency, isn't it? I mean, I've done two series for, for them. So one of them, obviously, Skip Tracer doesn't have any relationship to anything else. So that's, you know, why you're, you, you have to be very diligent in your own mind about what you do with where you go. And the one thing I've learned from doing that over time is that the stories you tell, you, the stories you tell have more impact if they build on the stories you've told. Yeah. Um, so I think much more than when I first started doing it, it's, it is, it sort of has built on top of the previous stories. Um, and I think that's kind of gone on and that's the, uh, the one that just finished does that. And the one I'm writing at the moment is the same sort of, it's kind of the end of a bit of an era. It's the end of it in, right. in a way of, of what we've done. So whether it's the end, I don't know, but um, it's, that kind of builds to the, what we've done. We wouldn't be able to tell this story if we hadn't done the previous six books so that's different diamond dog's different because it's dread world yes yeah so you have to kind of keep an eye on dread but brits it's just not mega city one is it i mean it's a lot more it's totally yes there are these strips yeah there's armitage yeah there's brits it brute yeah there's store is it storm warning the side judge yes that's right yeah storm warning yeah so you've got those strips that are there but they're not really operating in the same space you don't have that central figure of dread in Britsit to kind of cohere everything um so it's much more of a kind of um you carve out your little corner and the, the, the what i've done i mean the second book of that run starts in april i think and that's all completely done we did that like that was what i was doing over lockdown that's that's i've written it warren's drawn the whole thing and we're already started on the next one so um if if indeed that's a spoiler there and that is very much what we've done. We've kind of developed it and we've sort of set it in a, it's a sort of weird version of our world. I think it's a, it's very much Britsit, but it's a much more grounded sort of strip. And that's sort of developed as we've gone on, but it, there is some continuity, I would say in the second one. Um, and yeah, I'm not going to say any more than that. Okay. <laughs> it, re- it relates to the wider dread world, maybe in a way. What about working relationships? Um, if we think of John and Alan and Norm Brayfogle and Denny O'Neill, is there anything that you've taken from that and these stories when you've done your own working relationship with like Matt Smith or uh, Warren Police or, you know, because you've Paul done Marshall and Scott, Paul yeah. Marshall, Colin McNeil? Yeah. Is there anything that's influenced your writing there or do you think other writers could learn from John and Alan? Well, I think all writers could learn from John and Alan. Yeah. I, think sort of, <laughs> I mean, I think the thing that strikes me, having read their work as a very small child, I reread Doom Lord over the um, over the uh, lockdown. I ordered it from Hibernia. And I think you covered it, didn't you? Yes, we did. Yes, we covered those. Um... Yeah, yeah. And I remember reading those and, and beyond that when Eric Bradbury was in. I read that for years and I loved that strip. I loved it so much. Um, and I kind of... I, reading that as a very, as a small kid, reading that and loving it, and then reading, as I said, the stuff they did, John did in Battle that was reprinted that he'd done in the seventies, that had a huge impact on, as a kid, just the purity of the writing. But I've been rereading all the kind of I've been rereading case files over the lockdown. That's what you say. What I've been doing over lockdown, right? 
and lots of strontium dog, which I hadn't read in in any kind of real kind of fashion. And it's just you look at it and you look at that body of work and you just think it's fantastic. Um, particularly strontium dog. I mean, I think strontium dog, early strontium dog, he's a better strip than dread. Yeah, for me because it's a more consistent strip. I mean, the, those Star Lord strips that, that they recently republished, I was kind of blown away how good they were. Yes. Do you compare those to the beginning of Dread? Johnny Alpha's completely fully formed. It's straight away, it's, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Carl, and Carlos's art's magnificent. I mean, absolutely magnificent. Um, but I think, I mean, I think what I think what's interesting is if you look at them, we can look at these careers evolving in real in over a span of decades. And I think if you look at the way they changed, I think that's the thing that's really interesting. Um, and what you can learn is I think they learn from each other when they're working together. I think you can see Dread outgrow them as a pair as well. I think when you get to Oz, I was reading that recently, and it's like there's two stories in that that are fighting hmm. each other. And obviously we know which one wins because the Judda story becomes the sort of... Predominant narrative, big, yeah. Yeah, as we're moving forward. And um, and I think Dread, I mean, and I think Dread post their split with John at the Helmont, certainly from like like 89 into 90, um, obviously with, with, with Necropolis and the, and the Dead Man is the best. That's the bet for me. That's the that's an abs. That's the absolute pinnacle of the writing on the character. Right. Um, and I think it's you know it's a masterpiece of of Carlos Esquerra's artwork. It's unbelievable. It's um, but I think as well if you look at what Alan Grant did, we then went off and did Batman, but also what he did with Anderson. He's he learned maybe he's learned about the plot it the more the intricacy of plotting and everything from John. And that gives him then the space to really fly with the more kind of poetic stuff that he does, more romantic stuff he does with with Anderson. Um, but I think with I think Alan I think John Wagner's work post Alan Grant is more human. Yeah. Okay. I think there's a there's, and I think so. I think they have a they, their relationship on those is, is really fantastic. Um, and they kept they kept they were good, they've been so good for so long. I mean, I think that's hard in terms of your own collaborations with people. I don't know. I mean, I think um, with Matt, Matt's like John Wagner. It's very terse. Right. Okay. <laughs> your, your relation, Matt's very to the point. Matt's right. really good at terms of saying this works, that doesn't work. And then gives you the space to go and do it. And as a writer, that's all you want, really. I mean, there isn't really yet. You can, there's a lot of stuff that you can, there's a lot of kind of stroking and all that that is kind of pointless, a waste of time. Does it work? Does it deliver what we need to do? And then I think with the artists, you develop that over time. You kind of see what they're good at. Um, I was talking to Dylan Teague yesterday, actually. He's colouring um, Skip Chaser. He's pretty much coloured all of it. Right. Um, and we were talking about, we just he just got the, the next batch of pages from Paul for whatever book six of Skip Chaser is, and this particular episode. And he, we, he said how good they were and i and yeah and i got the pencils the day before and i thought these this is these are the best he's done and that's partly because i know he likes drawing different types of environment you, it's it's tailoring it to what the artist right can do, okay or, or really fires them up um and I, and with warren i mean warren i did dot two with and i didn't know that i was doing dot two with i just delivered the scripts and then warren drew these two dot two issues and i was really pleased because i like warren's work from <laughs> when i was about 15 reading true faith um 
And Warren really liked my scripts. So I suggested Warren for Diamond Dolls when we did it for the magazine. And uh, right. okay. Matt said, yeah, great. So we'll have him. And, and Warren has been brilliant. I mean, Warren's, there's very little kind of um, discussion about the stories. So like, this is what we do. Maybe this is how we should look. And then you just leave them to it. But we kind of communicate. They, sh- they send me the stuff as they do it and I have a look at it. And then that's good because that can feed into what you're writing. If you're still got scripts to write, you, it, it does help, I think, if you're in that kind of sort of ongoing organic sort of process. It means that you can sort of nip and tuck and respond. It's a bit like jamming, right. <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. Um, whereas I think with, when if you look at the, the, the early stuff that John and Alan were doing in 2008, it's really production line, isn't it? I mean, apart from the stuff you say, okay, you know Carlos is drawing, yeah. he's drawing him dog. Was dread. I mean, they obviously had no idea who was drawing dread, at least half the time. Yeah. So you kind of trying to make it artist proof, and I do think that's different. And uh, but I think latterly, I mean, obviously we don't really work that way now. So it's a sort of um, that's a good thing. But with Norm, they had a, he, they hit a thing. They hit something perfect. It's really interesting. You, I think you pointed this out with the America book, the Lost and Found. Yes. That John's scripts are not paginated. And that's how Alan used to write scripts for Norm Brayfogle. Right. And I wonder if that's because of their knowing who's going to draw it, because obviously they had a, he had a relationship with Colin when he was doing um, America. America. Yeah, they'd done um, Chopper, hadn't they, by that point? Yeah. And Alan obviously just used to write 100 pictures and give it to Norm, and you can lay it out within the 22 pages, however you want to do it. Um, and that's both of those, though. That's a, that's a DC Thompson thing. And they both work. That's where they met. They worked at right. DC Thompson. When I did my early stuff at DC Thompson, you don't paginate. You kind of write 100 pitch. It's a 50 frame or 150 frame story. So it's kind of interesting the way they've the way those work practices have kind of started right back in the, from early on in their careers, but also been a, adapted to different sort of working environments and different collaborators. And I think those the Batman stories. It's certainly when you get to Batman, they're run on Batman. It's much more kind of free form. You can see that with, mm. and Norm really goes to town with the layouts and yes. the page spreads and all these kinds of things. It's uh, and as you say, the cape a, is uh, the cape <laughs> is a character in itself. Yeah, when it when in doubt, use the cape as the outline of the page. Absolutely, that's a, that's yeah, a, a classic. I always I remember you mentioned Carlos. I always remember Carlos saying that he didn't like uh, writers who told him how to lay out the page. He said, you know, leave that to me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think I've noticed as well, artists sometimes respond very badly when you do that as well. And they do something completely different on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so to turn back to these two books, they are both available still. They're about £25 each in uh, softback. They're about, I think, one's £12, one's £15 digitally on Comixology. There's some other bits and pieces not by John Allen in there. There's some, as we say, there's a crossover mm. with The Question and Lady Shiva in an annual... There's a Sam Ham and Dennis Cowan miniseries. There I is. think, three issues. Well, they were that was what, they were three issues of Detective of Detective it. Comics, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some back matter stuff about Batman. There's some bits from the Who's Who and so on. So, would you recommend them to 2000 AD readers who've not read this run? Yeah, I would. I think they're. I think they're really. Uh, they're really strong. I think the first trade because it's the or volume two. Because it's pretty much all John Allen, Norm Brayfogel, there's a greater continuity of um, 
there's a qualitative continuity, I should say, I think, with the stories here. Yeah. Whereas I think in the second trade, because you've got the breaking up, you've got the crossover in there. Yeah. Uh, and you've got some of those. I would say that's probably not as it's not co- as coherent uh, collection. But the the fear, the Cornelius Sturck story, is one of the best. That's, that's great. a good story at the start of the volume three. But oh, as you say, fantastic. Yeah. And then in volume one, you've got ventriloquist, rat catcher, cadaver, corrosive man. It's great stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's great kind of mad sort of pulp. As yeah. I said, very it's quite psychedelic. I think the thing that I think comes across in it is the it's how it's Alan's thing is the very he's much more countercultural than John. There's a lot more kind of esoteric ideas and things mm. like that. And I think when John's gone, all of that comes to the fore. And you can see that in Anderson as well. So in a way, Batman, his work on Batman and his work on Anderson kind of, I think, sort of feed into each other because he was doing those work, that work, sorry, um, pretty much side by side. They were the, That was the main work. I mean, that was his main 2008 magazine work during this period. And obviously this was his main sort of US stuff. Um, so I think there's a kind of, co- there's a way that they kind of interweave with each other there. And of course, then the, the big thing that sort of sits over this for the two of them is obviously this is a route. They, this is why really they do judgment on Gotham. Yeah. Yes. It's why well, they can combine the two. And it's one of uh, that's, and that, you know, it works, it's, it works and it shouldn't, but it does. It's, uh, because of that. So I would recommend it very much so on that basis. And I think actually there are other good stories in here. I think that the, the Denny O'Neill annual is actually pretty good. I hadn't read that since, uh, 1988 probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the first part of a three part story, but I, uh, it goes into the question annual. And I think the green arrow annual of that year. That's right. Yes, um, I remember that. I do. And it's, um, I remember reading the, Denny O'Neill wrote a thing in one of the DC comics that month introducing the story and it's the first time I'd ever heard the, the name Dashiell Hammett oh right okay so he kind of built it around the Dane curse you know these three interlocking novellas so it's a, that's really good and I think that's, I think the Sam Ham story is interesting it is very, good stuff it's very well yeah yeah it's good and it's I fascinating to look at uh, Alan and John and of course Norman Brayfogle let's talk about Norman Brayfogle for a moment Grail Pages do you have any Grail Pages that you would would uh, pick from these two volumes? Well, cover. I would pick, can I pick a cover first? Of course, yes. Well, in that case, then, can I pick the cover to 590, which is an American Batman in London, which right. is the one that drew me into the drew me into the buying this comic in the first place, this run of comics, and I just think is I think it's a brilliant cover. I think it's an amazing cover. It's sort of. Um, Batman, Big Ben. Yeah. <laughs> that's not a graveyard, but it may as well be a graveyard. Um, that to me, yeah, is that's that's kind of Batman, really. <laughs> so I love that cover. I've always loved that cover. Um, I think a grail page, maybe from maybe from the Cornelius Sturk story. There's a great bit where Batman's being kind of um sort of demonically attacked right. <laughs> on page on page 12 of the second issue. He's tied to what looks like an upside-down bed. Yeah. It is an upside-down bed. Bed frame, he's been stabbed and he's bleeding, and Cornelius Sturk is sort of over his head trying to chew it, pretending to be a demon. Before turning into uh, Abraham Lincoln again on the other page, I 
any of uh, to be honest any pages from that issue in particular you could pick yeah that's the, that's the one but i love those two pages <laughs> cool okay well we will post those as ever on the socials when they come out I'm just gonna I'm gonna mention Mike Mignola's cover for 583, which is the cover image the artwork on this episode. That's lovely. Uh, a sort of that might be the first might be the first time he ever did Batman as well. Yeah, an iconic piece of Batman, really, isn't it? And actually, oh, yeah. there's on page 33 of the sec of the uh, the trade, the ventriloquist which study. One? So this oh, this is volume one. two. Volume two. This is. Just to cover a, a page of Norm Brayfogle, which has got Batman, it's got Ventriloquist and Scarface on there. It's got a wonderful sort of like from the bottom, the ground up angle on the front of the Ventriloquist Club. The club, oh yes, it's with Batman yeah. oh, yes, and yes. The, and of course it's got the cape. <laughs> oh, the cape that never stops. Yes, yeah. the it's, cape it's, that's it's, about two hundred yards long. But yeah, so I'd pick that I as well. That- then hit us with a git of a, a gig plate of spaghetti gollagaze. Of course, as, as, <laughs> bread and gutter. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad of the opportunity to have read these stories now, uh, and also to marvel at Norm Brayfogle's artwork and that Mike Mignola cover. Um, James, we've mentioned already uh, guest projects. So Skip Trace from right. Diamond Dogs both back this year. I th- well, yeah, I think Diamond Dogs is definitely back. Is back in April, right? And I, so I suppose we'll run for most of this year. After that, in the Meg, so April, May, June, yeah, 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 in the Meg. And I'm doing another one of those. Skip Tracer is half written, half right. about a quarter drawn. So I don't know when that's due to run, but that's I haven't got a date for that, so I don't know. But that's being done at the moment. And I've got I've actually got another thing starting in the. Prog in April. Ah. I've done thing with Mike. I've done a thr- I've done a thriller with Mike Collins. Ah, very good. Which uh, I've always wanted to work with Mike. I've known Mike for years. Never worked with him. Right. Um, and I've seen. I saw before lockdown. I used to see Mike quite a lot at conventions because of uh, um, just Mike's always at conventions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I got invited to a few. We were down at London. We were down at um, some things, and because we were at the SuperCon. I think it was the super it was July nine twenty nineteen. I'd just been a guest at the um at Gallifrey One. Right. In February in LA. And I said to I was talking to Mike in the green room um about uh I said, Have you ever been a guest? Because he's obviously a storyboard artist on Dot Two, isn't he as well? Not j- I've done lots of Dot Two comics over the years. Um and he said, No, I've never been. And then we were in the green room and Sean Lyon, who's the organizer of that convention, was over schmoozing Chris Eccleston to be their guest for the yes. for the next year. So I said, Mike, go over and talk to Sean and introduce yourself. And so Mike got an invite oh, <laughs> as a result of that. Good. He got a free trip. So we would, we stayed and I said, well, let's do something. So we did that. And we were talking, Mike's had an, Mike had an idea for a thing. We were talking about, we backed it, knocked it back and forth. So uh, we've done this kind of, it's, yeah, it's very sort of out of space, nuns and death and, things like that. It's sort of a bit different from what we've done in certainly what we've done in 2008 before. So what I have, it's a bit more like uh, we want, he wanted to do something that was a bit more kind of, he wanted to do something that's quite heavy metal-ish. So it's in that kind of big space fantasy right. vein. Oh, great. Um, so I think we've got a cover coming up as well. Oh, the first part. Of the so, so I hear, um, 
Something to look forward to. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. That was, that was a nice change of pace. And I was writing this. Um, I was writing that during the start of lockdown. I wrote, I, it, was, it was funny, I was doing the last book of Skip Tracer. I started it in like December, January of 2020, I think. And it, the first page opens with them being locked down. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, was, I went, so I was locked, we were locked down and I had to write the rest of it. And I went back and wrote the beginning and I thought, this is really weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So uh, that's why they wear face masks in that, I'm sure. Yes. Later on. And then escape into the into the air at the end but yeah so it's so that's so i've got those two coming coming up Excellent. um and if and the four-year-old you who was watching adam west batman and doctor who if you told uh the four-year-old you that you'd gone to write doctor who and batman comics how, how would that have gone down i think he would have he would have thought that that was of course of course it <laughs> What else are you gonna do? It's like, what? Get a job, you know. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's very, very strange to to think about that. Actually, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think I always I can remember sort of being about ten, eleven when I first started going to conventions, thinking that you could, and going to comic shops, and then before conventions actually, but then thinking that. Um, that would be a good job. Yeah. But also going to conventions, seeing these people on stage, you realise it was a job. So in a, the, the great thing about that was it wasn't like now with conventions, which are just, you know, kind of, you've got lots of stars or kind of looming around and you, you pay for your £100 to sort of like, you know, stand next to them for 10 seconds. Yeah. It was a case you could go in the bar and you could end up talking to Alan Grant or Garth Ennis or, jo, or, or John Wagner or John McRae or something like that. And, and they'd be really helpful. And, um, and Alan Grant in particular, as I said to you before, was when I was about 20, really helpful. Dan Abnett as well. Yeah. Um, so that I think it was, it, it, as a four-year-old, he would have said, of course, this is, you know, <laughs> you'd have, you'd go to, they'd fly you out to be in a, to be in a, to, to LA, to sit in a room with, with Dr. Who. That would be, <laughs> of course that would happen. But it's, it's, I don't take it for granted, put it that way. It's, um, I'm very, very fortunate. But also as well, it's not the only thing you want to be doing. So as much as I love doing Doctor Who, as much as I love, I do love Batman. Batman's my favourite character, the American comic book character, always has been, always will be. Um, what kind of animates you to do it is not really that. And I'm, I'm glad I've done it, but that isn't really what, it's where I started. It's what the, those are the things that made me want to do it at the start. Those aren't necessarily the things you want to be doing, if that right. makes sense. Tell us about the film that you finished shooting on last February. What? Which one was that? Yeah, uh, it was a short. It was called. Um, well, it, we shot it. It was called Play with Fire when we shot it, but we didn't use that title. Um, uh. We called it Strings, which was a much better title um, and much more appropriate. So we were filming that. Um, that actually has a Doctor Who monster in it. Oh, does it? <laughs> It does. Uh, Richard Ashton, who's in it, who is kind of one of the elite, one of the, there's three main parts in it. And he's one of them is, uh, he was, an, he was the ice warrior in the Empress of Mars. Oh, okay. Very good. I don't know if you've seen the Mark Gatiss one. Yes, I do. I remember Friday, that. Yeah. The one with the, uh, he's serving the uh, Victorian soldiers tea. Right. Yeah. But he was, um, but he's obviously been in loads of other stuff as well. Currently in some film on Netflix that, my friend's daughter, my daughter likes and her friends do. Um, 
Heaps. So, he, so we did that in... I, I got him because of my friend Toby Haydoke. He'd done a podcast with him. So it was, uh, he said he's a really good guy. Use him. So we, so I did. Um, and we shot that, I think, in February over one day. We had a really same sort of team of people I've used before on my films and same DOP. Um, and we... I'm trying to think what would... The shoot was really easy. It was the, it was the most painless shoot I've ever had it was obviously a to make up for the pain of the, <laughs> the next 12 months but that was very easy it was very it was really it went really well um, we put it together we sort of started it in March doing post so we did I think we did it post over March, April, May maybe June and finished it it was a bit slow because we're doing everything remotely yeah uh, it was fine. It was absolutely, it was easy to do actually. You, all the mixing was done remotely, all the grading was done remotely. The software is so good, you can kind of, you can kind of make your notes on the, at certain points where you think thing needs to be changed if, if you're color grading or color correcting or whatever. So it was, it was absolutely fine. Fine cutting was a bit difficult because you're, when you're sitting in the edit suite with someone, you can say, just take a second off. Yeah. And they can do it while you sat there. Whereas in this, they then have to go away and do it. Do it and then bring it back to you. Yeah. Sense. Yeah, so it's kind of tr- tricky, but it was it was good. It was I really I don't think it was any more. I don't think being in the room actually would make it made it any better. But we finished that, and that was we that was screened in the Elian Film Festival just before Christmas with another film I'd made about eighteen months before, two years before. Um, that film won a uh, sort of honourable mention at the festival. But yeah, they were they were both finalists, which was really good. They got seen by lots of people, and um, everyone seemed quite happy with how they turned out. I was very happy. The other film I was glad got shown because I hadn't been able to get it screened really before up to that point because of uh, and I, obviously this film as well I couldn't get screened because because of, of COVID. So it was um, yes, it was nice to have, even though you're online, you know most short films are going to live online. Yeah, <laughs> at the end of the day, and can we see them anywhere now? Can you get them online? Yeah, there, there's still the, the the festival site is still live, so you right. can see both of them on there. They're both there on the narrative drama category. I shall see if I'll I can put you. the links up in the show notes for this episode. Then, for those, yeah, 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 I'll send I'll send that to you. Um, cool. But yeah, they're there. I mean, they're there on. I mean, they're there on YouTube. They might be. Cl- will they be closed? No, they'll be accessed now. They've been screened, so right. they're, they they're not going to be kind of password protected or anything. But when I next do anything is remains to be seen. Okay, I mean, that's the that's the that's the question. Yes, filming well, is still not really on at the moment. Yeah. Well, unless you've got loads of money. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's your Tom Cruise. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to work on that. I have no. to say. <laughs> James has been splendid. Thank you so much as ever for your insights, particularly into the writing process, which I think is fascinating for listeners. Um, you know, people who are interested in getting started on 2000 AD or whatever themselves. And of course, give me an opportunity to read some Batman, which is, you know, can't be bad. Always a good thing. Yeah. And as I say, James Peaty will return with Hooligan's haircut. Hooligan's haircut. Same I time. It. I have it there ready. Yeah. I've got two cop I've got two copies somehow, but yeah, same time, same bat channel. Uh this time next year. <laughs> What a thought. <laughs> Will we still be sitting here, though? <laughs> well, who knows? We might be put in person at a Comic-Con or a pub somewhere. That would be nice. That it? would be nice. 
And thank you to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find all the links at megacitybookclub.com, including links to James's other projects. Follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and the 2008 forums and get in touch with me by emailing mcbcpodcast at gmail.com particularly if you're interested in picking a book and coming on the podcast yourself and that'll do us so thanks very much to james pt pleasure thank you james and until next time when we're passing judgment on another great book it's goodbye from me and goodbye from you Bye.